hearing all this talk about Eros and the imaginal and engaging these practices, trying out these practices <coughs> of the erotic imaginal, and especially uh, when it's sexual, you know, explicitly sexual, um, the eros and the images. Um, you know, it would be very uh, normal, I think, in our uh, culture, but also in the Dharma culture, for, for doubt to arise. It would be, be very, very understandable, very normal. So this, this, it's important to address this, I think, um, and to take a little time to look at that from different perspectives, unpack it, etc., and uh, uh, offer something that hopefully will be helpful. So some, uh, perhaps even quite a bit of what I'm going to touch on here, uh, we may have mentioned before here and there, but a lot of it's worth repeating, I think. Um, uh, some of it, at least, is worth repeating. And I also want to take it a little bit further uh, into um, other discernments, um, more refined discernments regarding eros and craving, etc. <clears throat> so, you know, someone could hear all this or even do a practice, and even when it... When it um, uh, you, you know, they're surprised by what the practice opens uh, for them and uh, how touched they are and the beauty of it. Um, someone can still, <coughs> and they do, come with a question, but isn't this escapism? This business with the imaginal, and especially when it's erotic, isn't this escapism? Will it lead to my not engaging with life? Um, so, you know, questions, well... In a way, is it? Is it escapism? Does it um, reduce your engagement with life, lead to some kind of cutting off from um, opening to life, meeting it, engaging with it? Does it close down your care with respect to life? You know, so the, the, in a way, the best um, way to address the question of doubt is really to turn it into an active question. Find out. Because at the end of the day, only you and your inquiry and your experience will uh, will really have the power, the convincing power. You know, sometimes the teacher or an authority says this or that, and people just trust <coughs> the teacher, me or Catherine or whoever it is in this case. But um, but really, at the end of the day, you know, we can know something for ourselves through our inquiry, through finding out, turning the doubt, actually. Uh, away from para from para the paralysis of doubt into an active engagement of questioning. Find out, is this escapism? Does it lead to a closing down of the care and of the engagement? So notice, see what happens. Um, we actually have to experiment to find out uh, for ourselves. But still, so we can, in a way, give the question back to you, um, and, and I think that's very important. Um, level of this, but we can also say say more um, about it, because we've talked about a little bit on this retreat and um, quite a bit on previous retreats, for instance, Path Imagine, about, about that images, about the fact that images often come with a sense of duty. Somehow, this imaginal figure or this image, um, it, wrapped up in that, 
some way or other they come with a, a message. Angelos is an angel is, is means message bearer. And and there's some kind of sense of duty. Sometimes it's not even it's not at all obvious. Um or or it's n- it's not obvious uh how or whether that needs to be concrete. Uh, actually I need to do something or say something or whatever it is um, and exactly what the translation is or how the image and the sense of duty in the image translates into my life uh, how obvious that translation is in what way, in what form in what idiom and what uh, d- domain and uh, what manner of expression most images, not all, but most images seem to want, seem to demand some kind of translation somehow. I don't mean translation to mean it means X, it means I should do this. Uh, I mean translation as in moving one, one thing from one <coughs> area, dimension, domain to another, translation. Um, so from the image to the life, like that. Um, and of course, some images are already wrapped up in in life. The the imaginal perception we have of our lives, of others, of situations, of our work, of our loves, etc. But somehow, the image is asking to be taken into the world somehow. And so, there's a discernment in: Is it asking that? How is it asking that? What does it? Uh, how does it kind of? How does life and image kind of reflect or mirror or echo each other? What's the dance, the back and forth, the dialogue, the uh, theatre, if you like, between those two two stages uh, reflecting each other as if two plays on each stage and they're somehow corresponding and they're somehow interacting, the players on this stage and the actors on the other stage opposite each other, mixing even. So this is this is something to point out in terms of does it is this escapism will it reduce my engagement with life will it lead to this kind of non-engagement withdrawal into this fantasy world of images and one becomes kind of inert and and uh, unengaged um, in one's uh, actual life you know. But but in relation to that, there's a sense of duty that images often have. Okay, so that's that's one thing. Another is you know, uh, and I've pointed this out before, so I'm not going to go into it now. But there is uh, at least in some spiritual circles, in and and Theravada Buddhism could could definitely be a uh, you know a case in point that there is the image of non-engagement, which is actually quite dominant. You understand the image of the the Buddha who kind of looks with um, affable equanimity uh, at the at the sort of entanglements of more worldly beings, and uh, uh, is not himself kind of in- engaged so much. You know, so that's the the eyes closed, the stillness, the equanimity. And of course, the movement to transcendence, which some people will come back to. <clears throat> um, but there is—it's—it's it's more like—is—is is there an image of non-engagement that's actually dominant, and oftentimes dominant partly through its unconsciousness, that we don't see it as an image, or we don't have enough range of other po- other possible images, archetypal um, images, 
uh, available to us as pictures of awakening direction. So it's not that images lead to um, non-engagement, you know, and so we better not have images. Sometimes the way Theravada Buddhism is is taught is don't have images, but there's a kind of um, not very conscious, implicit fantasy image of where we're headed, and that's towards a kind of non-engagement, politically, environmentally, etc. And I've talked about all this before, I'm not going to go into it now. But engagement is um, given in part, in part it's demanded by an image, most images, uh, because even an image of non-engagement is a kind of how am I going to be in life, you know? I'm, I'm going to be not so embroiled, not so involved, not so uh, heated by the fires of passion and involvement and uh, social justice, etc. Um, and and uh, but the nature of the engagement or non-engagement is given by the image. And we could add to all this that you know. Um, rather than taking us away from life, image and fantasy in the ways that I'm using those words, as imaginal images, I'm not going to say imaginal images every time, but almost always that's what I mean. Images, imaginal images and fantasies, they actually bring a dimensionality uh, to our perceptions of life and the world, self and other. So it's not that's a not that's not a non-engagement. That's a sort of deepening of connection, a, 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 a filling out. A, um, a, they also bring meaningfulness to the perceptions of self, other, world through through the image, through the fantasy, through becoming conscious of that, feeling our way into it, opening to it, letting it open us. People say, is this not just um, fleeing reality? Are you not just trying to flee reality? Fleeing reality, I mean, that's, we've also touched on this in other retreats, but fleeing reality, there's so much wrapped up in that ideation. Um, fleeing, something like fleeing reality is, is a movement of fear and aversion. It's something I don't want to open to, it's something I want to run away from, close down from, turn the world off turn that world off at least. There's a movement of fear. Is this what we're talking about, really a movement of fear? And again, does it close the heart and close the engagement? Um, Fleeing reality out of fear will do exactly that. It will, uh, and it will become quite obvious uh, in time, if not to oneself, to others around one, that there's a closing of the heart happening here. There's a closing of the psyche, and uh, and there's a, there's a lack of engagement in life. There's a, um, a dying of the engagement in life to a certain extent. And then we could also, again, turn the question around and um, actually say that this whole notion of fleeing reality into imagination um, may be uh, missing the fact uh, that it's it's coming already out of a certain ontology, epistemology, cosmology, which has, um, over centuries now, belittled the imagination and belittled any kind of sacredness of that or purpose to it or uh, uh, soul-making as well. Um, 
so if we actually open up the conceptual framework, the logos, and actually grant the world of the imaginal a, a place, a necessary place, an importance, a significance, then we can actually turn that question around and say, are we fleeing in our lives? Are we fleeing the reality of the imaginal? Yes, it's a different kind of reality, and there's all kinds of, for me, very interesting ontological questions for us to work out as human beings. Uh, I don't think to find a final answer, but to um, to explore creatively, creative epistemology, creative ontology, creative cosmologies. But we could easily ask, all this... Um, dismissal of the imagination and and this kind of fearful clinging on to so-called reality, are we fleeing the reality of the imaginal, fleeing the demands of it, fleeing its implications, the depth, the meaningfulness, the duty that comes from that, the, um, the ways that it opens the psyche, the soul, the heart, the vision, the sense of the world, the sense of the self, the sense of other. Yeah, just actually, for me, there's more cogency in and force in that in that questioning that way around. I'm so used to assuming and thinking a certain way, and on top of that is just the whole question about re- related is is what do you mean by reality? What are you assuming reality is? atomic billiard ball billiard balls buzzing around in some kind of scientific materialist flatland is that what reality is or is reality exposed by so-called bare attention or mindfulness and therefore the imaginal and all that is not reality again I'm not going to go into that I've talked plenty and written about that in the past but um, there's so much um, kind of uh, unexpected Implicit in 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 terms of assumptions in in these kind of questions, is it escapism? Is it fleeing fleeing reality? Is it wish fulfillment? You know, it it's uh, it's important to address these questions, but to actually really address them, so I mean, really make them questions. It's very easy for something to sound like a question, and it's not actually a question. So you know, is it wish fulfillment? Is it even my wish? In in the erotic imaginal, do I really feel like this is me and my wishes and I'm indulging my wishes? Actually, look into that. Whose wish is this? I'm engaged in this erotic imaginal interaction or I'm watching this erotic imaginal, uh, sensing this erotic imaginal interaction, whatever. Is it really my wish we're talking about? My wish? The ego's wish? Whose wish is it? It's, it's quite subtle. And am I able to let go? We talked about this before. Am I just dragged without any choice whatsoever? Or, or am I able to practice putting down, letting go, walking away, picking up and putting down? Some, you know, variation on this kind of question. Isn't, there all, isn't all this just indulging greed? All this talk about eros and erotic imagination. Isn't that just indulging greed? So yeah, important to ask this question, but again, let's go into the question more. What happens? What happens to those who indulge uh, what we might call greed or craving over time? Well, over a year or 10 years, you watch a person and when that when that kind of tendency and habit 
to indulge greed and craving is kind of got a free a free flow it's got it's it's allowed it's uh, acquiesced to it gains the upper hand or you know people start making all kinds of um we can start making all kinds of uh, justifications to ourselves oh, I work really hard and this and that all but you know whatever it is and even even talking about you know, pe- people, dharma, dharma folk, people who are living a dharma life in some kind of very full way. It's their work, it's their wh- whatever it is. Um, it's really at the center of their life. And yet somehow over the years what happens when just, just things like um, comfort, convenience, pleasure, security, all very, very normal. When, when the um, craving for these things comfort, convenience, pleasure, security, um, is just, it starts to just be, uh, gain, gain, there's more leeway for it. It's given more permission, it's acquiesced to, it's not questioned so much. It just has its kind of um, river flowing at the side of whatever else we're doing, dharma-wise. And it's regarded as okay. And what happens to the fire? What happens to the brilliance of being, to the intensity, to the, to, the, to the luster of the diamond, of the chitta, of the heart, of the soul, the radiance? What happens to that over, over time? Five years, ten years, twenty years? And what happens conversely to someone who explores the erotic imaginal and actually... Um, discerns between eros and craving and investigates eros and opens to it and lets it take things deeper over you know time what 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 uh what kind of chitta what kind of soul uh, emerges or is shaped by indulging one or the other eros or craving or greed so you know look look around you Find out. Don't assume. Don't even assume that this person or that person must be living like this or making this choice or that choice just because I assume that about them or myself. So, doubt is questioning and that's really good. But make it questioning. Make it real questioning means inquiry, investigation, not just settling for a fog of paralysis or confusion, or just a sort of standard easy answer. Just oh, that's I just heard this, so it must be true. And then to investigate, of course, we say how do how we have to begin to discern between eros and craving in the first place. We've talked some about this, and come back to it again. You know the centrality of the energy body. Just including the energy body already in the awareness and the fullness of that um, already um, moves it, uh, helps it become eros rather than craving. The, the, the sensitivity, the openness to the whole energy body. And eros will be characterized, the erotic imaginal will be characterized, characterized by an opening and a harmonizing, perhaps energizing, etc., of the energy body. Unlike craving, unlike craving, and then there's the soul making, which we can notice as well. So we've touched on this and actually revisited uh, some more, I think. 
but we can notice the differences here and actually we can learn as we touched on already in earlier talks we can actually learn to navigate between uh, or from craving to eros that's quite possible something might feel like I'm caught in craving or craving has caught me there's the contraction of that whatever there's a certain way of seeing there's a certain state of the consciousness of the energy body etc excuse me and um and your art can discern that, and then with 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 the development of the skill and the art of practicing, actually, let's let's see if we can liberate this craving into eros, not just let it go. We can we can do that too, in many many ways. I've talked a lot, written about that elsewhere, but but um, we can actually learn to navigate from craving to eros, let it transform. So some eros, as I said, is very, very subtle, not just talking about like sexuality, we've said this many times, and even um, even even uh, there, there's, there's a really a range, you know. So some eros uh, and some of that erot- erotic uh, connection, erotic charge and movement is very, very subtle. Um, but, you know, Let's not be too naive here. So, in a, in a way, I don't want to be alarmist because that's completely defeating the purpose and it's not justified. It's just not justified. On the other hand, just because of the range of subtlety and um, and also because of the distinctions I'm making, like what leads to what. But on the other hand, I don't want to be too naive. We've said, you know, Eros is fire. Fire. There's something about Eros that's like a fire. And fire is... Um, potentially dangerous. At the same time, I've said this already, you know, fire is also extremely useful, extremely productive, um, uh, very helpful, but it's also something that can be dangerous. So that, um, yes, we can learn to navigate with practice, with time, from craving to to eros, transform craving to eros in the moment. Um, but also, something may start as eros and uh, if if we're not careful, uh, may just um, contract into craving, divert, uh, contort itself, or get yeah, shrunk somehow, and so it becomes craving. And and so there's a there's a danger in all this. You know, there are dangers in all this. Playing with fire. And uh, of course, if you're used, if you've been around um, the Dharma for a while, you know that. One of the um, Buddha's m- metaphors, if you like, was um, uh, of extinguishment, extinguishing the fires of um, <clears throat> greed, aversion, and delusion. So there's the whole I don't know, imagery, if you like, of extinguishing fires. It's very, very central in Pali Canon Buddhism. Um, that actually, this is partly on the side, that's actually quite interesting because um, a case could be made historically that the Buddha picked that analogy um, for a couple of reasons. One was, as as all teachers must be, as all, as all dialogue must be, it's in context. And, and the context that he was dealing with at that time in India was a Brahminical um, sort of religion, Vedic, etc., that, uh, I don't know the exact details, but they kept uh, they kept alive. You had to keep the fire going. So actually people whose job is uh, sacrificial duty it was to keep the fires going. I think there were three fires, I think. 
And so the Buddha was addressing himself, you know, a little bit polemic, a little bit wanting to turn something upside down. Said, you don't need to keep, it's not three fires that you need to keep going, it's three fires that you need to put out. Greed, um, aversion, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion. So, you know, you can see the, if you like, the relativity of, of, of that metaphor, partly that came out of context. And had he been in a very different context, would he have used that metaphor? We are now in a different context. Especially living in uh, cold England or New England or wherever we are. Um, uh, and there's a second reason that the Buddha picked that, was to do with the, um, the sort of... Uh, physics, if you like, or the, 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 the then-current uh, understanding of what fire was and uh, what happened to it, what happened to a fire that you put out. So nowadays we, we just think, well, you just put it out. It doesn't, it's, it's gone. It's, it's extinguished. You know, it's just disappeared. There is no fire. In those days, actually, the sense was the fire was liberated. When you put out a fire, here's this wood fire or whatever, and, and you extinguish it, um, the fire is liberated. It's sort of liberated in the sense that it's not clinging to any object. And there's just a kind of, it 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 is beyond, I think, beyond space and time, etc. It's unbound. Um, and uh, there's an etymology there of nibbana with that unbinding of fire, nibbana, uh, the, the unbinding. Uh, but but it wasn't just a disappearance and a non-existence. It was actually, uh, it's almost like, it was al- almost, if you like, more potent, but not clinging to anything. So it was just this kind of, if you like, abstract fire that was liberated. But anyway, uh, the point is that if we're used to hearing a certain directionality in, re- in regard to the metaphor, the imagery of fire, and then we're saying, you know, we're using the opposite analogies here about... Uh, mastery of the fire and stoking it and tending flames and all this you know that can that can cause some uh, some something in the being to shake a little bit with doubt and you know if we talk about the imagery of Dionysius which I, which I did in at one talk recently and and saying how unsettling, how disruptive, um, how fragmenting, um, violent and erotic um, and kind of a little bit intoxicated, Dionysus was the god of wine, um, intoxicated and uh, yeah, wild, raving, etc. And how that disrupts the sort of um, serene, controlled, placid um, sometimes sterile sort of course of what is regarded as civilized. And that's all in the territory. You know, when we play with fire, when we're with eros, and and, and then that um, mythology and the mythology of the breaking of the vessels from the Kabbalah, Shurata Kilim, the, the, all this, you know, we understand what we're saying. This is in the territory of what we're opening to. This comes with the whole uh, landscape that we're entering. Um, it would be very understandable that doubt and trepidation um, arose. And again, it doesn't fit um, the imagery that we have or that we've absorbed. There are 
that there isn't a kind of Dionysius equivalent in in Theravadan Buddhism. That iconography, that mythology, um, just doesn't exist except as something to get rid of. I think I mentioned this before, but you know, in the Vajrayana I- I- icons and deities and uh, of uh, of tantric Buddhism. I'm not sure, I don't know nearly enough about the history of how, how icons get mixed, etc., or how they did get mixed, but there's, you know, a lot of those gods are full of wildness, those yidams and deities, full of wildness, wrathful deities and phallic deities and um, uh, the, the, the eros and the sexuality that's that's visible there. But but in Theravada Buddhism, Pali Canon Buddhism, we're really not used to that kind of mythology. It does it just is not given a place except as something to renounce, move beyond, get rid of, towards another archetype of this, as I said, um, renunciate, celibate, equanimous, uninvolved, calm, all that. So yeah, playing with fire, and there's danger, and there's upset, and shatterings, and disruptions, and uh, all, all that Go, goes with the territory, I think, of soul making and opening to eros and and fire. And again, I don't want to be alarmist because we're also talking about really subtle movements, and, and there's the wisdom of the navigation. But there is that, you know, there is that possibility. But even then, you know, we can ask, and and again, it's really important to ask, is there a path without risk? Is there some kind of practice that has no risk? And anyone who really loves a path, (coughs) or a set of practices, um, anyone who really loves it, that it's really important to them in their life, um, they will be willing um, to put up with and open themselves to some kind of risk, some kind of sacrifice, some kind of discomfort or confusion at times or, or suffering is regarded as okay and acceptable and even necessary on the path. So ask this of yourselves. Look back at your path or paths you've taken and see um, at different times how, how ready and willing you know, also the nobility of this, the beauty of this, you were to open to and enter into and uh, go through um, all, all kinds of um, periods or moments, uh, transitions or whatever of of risk when you didn't quite know or sac- sacrificing something or other, confusion, discomfort, suffering basically. And the question is what kind of um, risk, sacrifice, confusion, discomfort, suffering are okay on the path? What kind? So, you know, um, it's less sort of, I don't know, dominant now, but the whole Mahasi tradition, as it, as it was taught by Mahasi Sayadaw and Upandita and, and some teachers, very, very intense and strict. And the retreats there were uh, full of suffering. Ask um, ask. Uh, anyone who sat through um, some of those long retreats with Upandita, and someone from the outside said, "Why you put yourself through all this suffering? I thought you were interested in the end, in in getting rid of suffering." But there's a whole logos there, and there's a whole image that gives nobility to that suffering, um, and there's a whole purpose regarded. There's all kinds of sacrifice, all kinds of risk, all kinds of confusion, discomfort, um, but. 
or rather certain kinds, is arranged there in, in just that paradigm of, of uh, sort of strict Pandita style. The question is, what kind? What kind is okay on your path, and how does it fit? What kind of discomfort, confusion, sacrifice, risk, suffering? Or, you know, Ajahn Chah, and uh, there's a passage somewhere, maybe in a still forest pool, I can't remember, but he talks about just just um, being, meditating in the jungle when he was practicing solitary, and just crying, this d- deep well of tears. And sometimes he's not even sure why he's crying, maybe there's loneliness and stuff, but it's beyond that. And, you know, many of us know this. It's just pr- practicing in this... this uh, upwelling of, of um, a, you know, profound sobbing, etc. And, and, and yet there's the whole um, image and, uh, and logos that kind of supports that. This is good. This is good. Yeah, it's difficult, but this is good. This is heartful. This is healing. This is releasing whatever it is. And of course you get that in psychotherapeutic paradigms as well. So, you know, I've, I've been through all of this sitting through lots of pain, um, huge um, upsurges of emotions. I just didn't know what they were about. What kind of risk, discomfort, confusion, sacrifice, suffering are okay on your path? When you think about um, an artist, how, you know, someone who really, really gives themselves, dedicates themselves again. How much, what are they willing to put up with? And there's risk in that, and there's confusion, and there's uh, sacrifice. No, no, this is not an easy choice. It's so similar. This is part of the territory. When we love something deeply, when we're really engaged... And the question with all that is, what does it serve? If there's going to be um, involved, you know, there's the possibility of disruption, there's a possibility of confusion, there's some kind of risk, and there's some kind of um, suffering or, or, or burn, if you like. What is it serving? So all this goes together with, with an understanding, with a sense of where I'm going, with a logos, with a conceptual framework, as we talked. You know... Any any practice brings risk. Absolutely. What kind? What kinds, plural? And what's it serving? How are we seeing it? And what's okay for us? And if I trace my own um, sort of process with, um, not just with imaginal practice, but specifically with the uh, more obviously erotic imaginal. Excuse me. You know, again, we're making the point that eros and imaginal go together. They're completely, it's not imaginal unless there's eros, and it's not eros unless there's the imaginal dimension. But if I trace my own process, I'm um, you know, I'm certain that it took me a while, it was a really a gradual process to move towards really trusting, for instance, um, uh, images, or working with images, um, just say, e- even of, like, females who were attractive, you know, so it was a little bit cautious, and, and it's funny now, um, some years later, after having, you know, experimented with all this f- for uh, some years now, um, I actually can't quite remember why 
I was so tentative and so unsure about um, exploring the more erotic images, um, which I think is interesting in itself. Something that actually had quite a, um, you know, subtle but but powerful grip on my consciousness and on my choices in practice. Um, I actually can't quite. I was trying to remember in preparing this talk, but I actually can't fully remember. Um, I think it had something to do with a suspicion that. Um, anything like that would just be a distraction, would distract uh, and dilute me from my kind of central purpose of what practice was about and there was something in that kind of engagement with that kind of um, uh, eros and sexuality and the feminine that would confuse me. Um, but this is kind of partly a guess and it's it's interesting to me that I, that I can't actually remember. In other words, it's just past. Um, and strange, I was trying to find it in old notes, of, uh, but I, I seem to have lost a notebook. Um, uh, anyway, uh, I know that Jung, Carl Jung, in a way, uh, some people would interpret his whole psychology as being partly, um, if you like, emerging from a whole predisposition that was very... Um, uh, similarly uh, kind of distrustful of the feminine and the and the attractive sexual, as if there's some kind of luring siren there. Um, so I know James Hillman and some others have made that critique and wondered what kind of psychology would have emerged from Jung had he been more trusting and more listened to what he called anima, the anima voice, which he was so um, sort of wary of in the development of his psychology and in his personal process. Um, so interesting to me uh, and, and I look back and I see um, sometimes that there was a tendency at first to, to choose um, a non-sexual image to work with in meditation for example if I'd had uh, two dreams the night before that had made an impact on me and I remembered and one was say more obviously sexual and the other was maybe a little bit more obviously spiritual and I would choose the more spiritual one for a while there was that tendency to lean away from that into what was yeah more obviously spiritual or if I was working with an image in meditation there were multiple figures there and I said okay which one uh, if, if it was like one I would go to it would tend to be not the uh, for instance, attractive female one or, or whatever. Um, so I, I, no, I noticed that tendency looking back, and I noticed also that I was quite uh, tentative at first um, in, uh, you know, in meditation practice at least, um, tentative, uh, well, this is, this is spiritual, so, um, so that if there was beginning to be more a willingness to explore the erotic, imaginal, and even the sexual, there was... Uh, even that was tentative at first, so perhaps I wouldn't kind of go into the more kind of carnal and voracious um, sexual image, or, or maybe just hold back a little from letting it unfold that way, or otherwise it would have been more natural. Um, but no, this is meditation time, so it's spiritual or whatever. And then, uh, and again, I've lost an, an, I think I've lost a notebook or something, but. Uh, um, I made a note a while ago about all this um, that I could trace a kind of gradual letting myself explore kind of uh, gradually more and more this kind of uh, this kind of strand of the erotic imagination and, and the specifically sexual um, in the meditation practice but I 
I just can't find that notebook. But anyway, I was aware of this. Uh, I could trace this uh, evolution, if you like. And then a few years ago, um, I had a dream, and um, and somehow in the dream, I was trying to resist the um, seductive advances of, of a beautiful woman, and I wasn't quite sure I could remember after the dream why why am I resisting this and I don't know if she was like is she, was she a yogi or something was it some kind of boundary issue I wasn't sure it was something something like that um, but I felt very ambivalent you know very drawn towards her uh, and attracted um, so so I felt like only kind of half successful in my in my attempts to resist her and by that time, I was interested in all this, so I took it in into meditation and in into the uh, imaginal practice. And then he, here she was again. I sort of re let her come again, and um, and then I entered her deliberately. I don't mean sexually. I mean entered her being and sort of became her, identified with her, which I've explained is one of the options and how you can do that. And I became I became her in 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 the meditation practice and sort of looked out of her eyes, out of her being, at me, at Rob. And I was aware of how much kindness she she really cared for me. There was again love there. Um, but she's also kind of communicating somehow, you're being a bit idiotic, Rob, uh, and you're missing the point here. Um, so that was interesting. Is someone just very kind of pointing out a sort of stupidity, if you, if you like, and uh, rigidity. Um, and I asked her as I was experimenting, f- finding ways of working with images this a few years ago. Um, I asked, her, well, "What do you want?" And her response—I can't remember if it was verbal or not—but her response, the sense I got was actually she, she had just a very simple sexual desire, a very simple, erotic, sensual desire. And, and in the very simplicity of it was a kind of purity. And, and it's like, look how simple and pure this is, and you're, you're being a little idiotic, <laughs> Rob. Um, so, so this was kind of interesting, and then so I let myself experiment in the meditation with the eros, with the, with the erotic imaginal, with with the sexual. But as I was working with it, you know, it's like I felt confused. It's like, what's the point of this? Where where is it going? What 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 what? what where, where would this kind of exploration go? This okay, I'm mindful of the sexual imagery and, and entering into that, but what, what's it actually gonna? Is it actually gonna achieve anything? Does it lead to the end of suffering? So these, you know, that confusion was very, very uh, alive for me. It was very much at the point there. A L- little later, I realized, you know, I actually don't know, and and more than that, I am deliberately in a period of exploration here. Um. Or rather, this is the domain of my exploration. So, I'm always in a period of exploration, but this is the domain of exploration. I actually don't know the answers to these questions. Is there a point? Where will it go? Will it achieve anything? What's it got to do with the end of suffering? And I remembered, um, I've shared this, I think, on some other talk somewhere or other, but um, I remembered uh, many years before a time in my practice where I was, my, my what I was really investigating was the, what I was really... Uh, investigating deeply and exploring the domain of my exploration at that time in, in practice was the relationship of awareness and emptiness. I found all these conflicting teachings and unclear and people dogmatically saying this and that. And it was so, um, so searing for me as an investigation, so much um, 
uh, heart and emotion and passion involved. And I remember sitting um, uh, outside at Guy House cr- crying uh, tears with, with so much like wanting to understand, wanting to penetrate with insight and, and just not having someone I could ask or, or, or fully um, rely on for an answer. And, uh, and yet, so there was all, all that confusion and that, that sort of um, confusion in the, in the investigation, the passion of the exploration. But eventually, eventually insights came in relation to awareness and emptiness and um, answers came and ways forward emerged. I uh, found, found things or discovered things or worked certain things out or found ways to practice, etc. So I was kind of remembering that and telling myself, hey, you've been through something like this before, confusion and um, really unsure how to proceed and what's worth trusting and all, all that. And then also reflecting, you know, in regard to the imaginal, it may be um, that there is no definite final answer or truth. You know, so it's even a different kind of investigation, if you like. Um, but at the moment, I said, yeah, I'm aware of that, and I'm actually okay with that. There was, so I was part of, partly was okay, and there was still this kind of concern and trepidation and kind of real ambivalence about the possibility of, you know, a long but ultimately fruitless exploration. So I might decide to explore all this and spend years and, and you know hours and hours of practice time and eventually come to the conclusion, well, that was a waste of time, or that was actually really not helpful, and now I'm stuck with this and that problem or whatever it is. Um, see, but this is, this is the risk, or that was the risk for me at that time, you know, um, that felt like the risk. And this is, if you like, the, the risk of the, uh, if we make a, a metaphor, of the research scientist. If you listen uh, to some theoretical physicist, I spend my days um, working out equations on a piece of paper, trying out equations and theories on a piece of paper or a blackboard, and at the end of the day, none of them have worked, and I just erase them all, and then I do the same thing the next day. So how many dead ends, how, how much unknown there is in, in, the, in the passion and the willingness to explore and similarly, you know, to, to in a different way, same if you're an artist or, or, or some, sometimes there's something similar there. Um, but kind of telling myself, well, that's the lot if you're exploring, um, if you're actually finding out um, when there doesn't appear to be uh, any, any teachings on this uh, that I was aware of, um, then that's the lot. You don't know. There's a risk there. You're moving into the unknown and you don't know where it's going to lead. In relation to that um, image of this uh, that came out of the dream, um, what did come was a sense of um, a kind of particular kind of holiness, um, a kind of uh, feminine divinity that permeated um, uh, nature. It was sort of uh, now I would call that cosmopoesis. Back then, I you know I didn't really. Um, hadn't made that connection yet, um, but uh, but I noticed that oh that's interesting. I worked with that, and then outside, and and uh, there was this real sense of um, feminine divinity in and through nature, and then a little later, still going for a walk, and um, something 
it felt like I was in a different relationship, um, a different sensual relationship with nature. Something in the sensuality opened um, with regard to the nature around me, beneath my feet, etc. And it wasn't mindful of sensations, which I'd been, I mean, or rather it wasn't just mindfulness of sensations. Um, it involved that, of course. Uh, and I've been practicing that for years. And nor was it only just enjoying the pleasantness of the hot day or, or whatever it was, and the warmth on my skin and all that. Something, uh, another kind of level, uh, it came into my relationship with nature that was, that was sensual. Something opened in, in the sensuality. And yet, it still was not could not be reduced to it. You know, I wasn't going to put it in the box. Did not feel appropriate or right to say, "Oh, she, this figure from the dream and the, and the imaginal practice, she represents my sensuality," or something like that. No, it was it was there was a sense of there's something bigger here. I can't quite um, again get get my mind around or fathom completely as if she she manifests or embodies this figure some kind of um at present unfamiliar kind of wisdom an unfamiliar kind of depth so something was opening but but bigger than i could really um figure out if you like or the mind could figure out so a lot of this happens in small movements and that's partly uh partly kind of what i want to communicate about this kind of process, uh, working with soul work and and certainly exploring, um, a lot of it's in small movements. I'll share another image, and I'll actually give um, m- more detail. Um, so this is again transition o- over time, some uh, maybe a year later or a little less than a year. I don't know half. I don't know half a year, a bit more. Um, and again, you know, why I choose certain images to share, sometimes I choose an image because it's kind of like really intense and really could be regarded as kind of crazy and it's almost to normalize, just there's that range too. And sometimes I choose an image because it's really the opposite. It's really not a big deal. It's not that colorful. It's not that unusual, dramatic. Um, so to really give a sense of the range, like all that is there. And sometimes it's it's it's... Uh, want to share or want to include kind of what goes on in working with the images, including all the sort of um, false starts and wrong turns, etc., in in the practice. So you get a sense of um, actually creative working and responding and navigating, you know, that it's not all just immediately obvious and clear and all that. And there's, there's some, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, dancing a little bit with, with the thing. So, um, sitting in meditation and I kind of opening myself to see what came, and um, I see uh, a visual image uh, that, that, in this case, um, I see a, a young woman sitting by the side of the road, and she's sad for some reason. And I'm unsure whether to go with the image at first, but then I decided to go with it. Um, and so I sat down next to her, and um, and her arms were attractive. There was something like I wanted to comfort her, and, and I stroked her arms, um, sort of mixture of uh, with with you know sexual attraction, but also because she was sad. And I um, I noticed that I wanted her to talk, you know, you know, uh, but I also noticed at the same time that there was a, a pressure to make her talk because of some or other book that I was reading that says that basically said you need 
to get some verbal message or something from the image. So, um, uh, but so so I kind of backed off a, a little bit from the pressure of wanting wanting it to be verbal and just kind of opening the the, the sensitivity to, if you like, receiving communication, which as I've said some some uh, somewhere before, the communication is can be just the image. It's not like there's the image and then it communicates X, Y verbally or with, you know, some kind of signal or something. Sometimes the image is the communication. But this question, what does she want? Um, backing off the whole pressure to be verbal. And um, the sense was, she's commun- she wants to be loved by me. There's some kind of communication at that. Now, is it was actually hard to stay focused. Again, I'm mentioning this, you know, that's all part of it. So, oh, this image, if my concentration flits in and out of it, I lose it, it comes back. Um, but I just, okay, fine, that's just, you know, either that's the nature of this image or it's just one of those days, no, no problem. Um, and um, that there's some kind of uh, loving of her. So I'm working as well with this, okay, it's not so, so, so focused, but I'm in and out of that, it's fine. And there's some kind of, I'm really loving her. Um, but the loving, it's not that it's explicitly sexual, it's not really like, you know, sexual. It's more just kind of sharing and being with her. Somehow there's love being communicated. And she keeps changing. Um, and, and somehow uh, in that, I see that actually, or, or I kind of reflect, she's empty. You know, she's changing. She's not inherently this way or that. And that makes me realize I can only love, because I'm sort of trying to open myself to loving her. Um, I say trying, very, it's very delicate trying, um, supporting that movement uh, of the heart and that opening of the heart and that flow. Um, but I realize I can only love, I, I can love only who is in front of me. Uh, right now, so she keeps changing, and and uh, how she is, etc., and her appearance, and and really, I can only love who is in front of me right now, um, and um, commit uh, to at least showing up for how they appear next. So here's what she is now, and and just however she'll be in the next uh, moment or minute or whatever. It's like okay, well, I'm just gonna keep showing up. And whoever it is in front of me, I'm going to, however she seems, I'm going to keep loving that. So there's a sense of mystery in that, in her emptiness. Uh, and then I also realize kind of, you know, with a thought, oh, this applies to real beings as well, because they change too, don't they? <laughs> and it tells me something about love. Um, but, okay, so there's a thought, but I said, okay, fine, there's a little insight there about, you know, matter and stuff like that, but um, with implications for you know, actual life, um, so-called, and, um, but, but, okay, just noting that, and it's not, uh, I don't make a big deal of that, or I don't focus on it, um, but again, the whole thing comes in and out of, um, focus, and I have to remind myself, um, to see it all as an experiment, I really have to make a conscious, again, there's this kind of unsureness, what am I doing here, is it leading anywhere, is it, you know, da da da, but I just remind myself of this attitude of experimentation, and, and that, that helps, and so there's this kind of sharing and meeting, and she sort of opens up to me, um, her being opens, and it's like I enter her, um, and then all kind of kaleidoscopic um, geometrical forms appear which 
feel quite mystical and significant and, and wondrous somehow, um, quite subtle. Um, but again, doubt arises, and I don't particularly, so I'm not necessarily picking up on these um, kaleidoscopic geometrical forms, even though they feel very wondrous. Um, but then after all this, um, I feel uh, that, you know, the subtle after effects of that whole interaction, of that whole imaginal interaction. So you can you can hear, as I'm saying this, how kind of undramatic the whole thing is, how, how, how much unsureness there is, and how, how the whole thing is just really kind of micro-movements that at the time can really seem like, mm, I'm not sure, is this significant? Should I stay with this? Is anything happening? All that. Um, the word for psyche is a Greek word, and um, I'm pretty sure it's either related to or even some very very uh, similar word is is the same word for butterfly i can't remember if i shared this in a talk before so psyche and butterfly are related now butterfly i'm taking this from james hilmer butterfly makes um little flitting movements from side to side it's not this um direct supersonic jet flight or crow's flight or um you know a bird of prey falcon sort of soaring through space um, at, at this great speed. It makes these little flitting, non-direct, moving from side to spi- side, not very fast. That's the characteristic movement, the characteristic flight of the psyche. Uh, and so there's a lot, as I said, in this soul work, um, soul-making work and imaginal work, a, lo- a lot of it um, feels... Uh, yeah, like little micro movements, little this side and then that side, and not this sense of like great strides in a in a direct line that can characterize other movements or other, if you say, dimensions of soul uh, movement, the movement of other dimensions of soul, spirit, etc. Um, now, what's also interesting, again, in in the sort of um, seeming lack of power at first of this whole experience was. Um, so I get up and it was soup time or whatever, and the thought just goes from my head to something I'd read not too long ago, and I actually, again, read it about the um, cosmos being erotic, something to do with Kabbalah somewhere or other I'd read. Um, and and it's like that thought, just just vaguely remembering it, that had been planted there from what I had read, um, sort of came into combining alchemical reaction, if you like, with this image that also didn't seem kind of really that fruitful or that dramatic particularly, um, that I was ambivalent about and not sure about. Um, but then somehow they came into interaction and that opened up um, the whole sense of the eros of the cosmos on multiple levels. It's like, it's quite subtle, um, but but really quite... a a subtle but powerful um, transformation of the perception of the world, um, related to or imbued with, again, this sense of that imaginal young woman and the feminine um, pervading, the feminine divinity pervading this feminine divinity, pervading the conscious, seeping out into what I now call um, cosmopoesis, some kind of alchemical transubstantiation of the world there. And then a lot of happiness came with that. Um, so I, I made a note, you know, oh, okay, this is interesting. Don't judge the value of imaginal practice while you're actually doing it. 
Um, because it may not feel like much or seem very significant, and the effects can come later sometimes. Again, we're back to this discernment between intensity and... Um, What's the other word I use? But uh, effect. I can't remember the word now. Efficaciousness. But um, uh, so you know, an image or something that's planted as what we've read or heard in a teaching. These things are like seeds, and they 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 can uh, do their work kind of underground and blossom later, just like meta practice or something like that. And then even later, you know, I went out and I think I went for a bike ride and I was walking, uh, just walking my bike for a while. And um, there was a sense of being in, um, in this uh, alive universe, personified, um, impersonal for sure, but also had this personification, uh, divine personification um, of this... um, what sometimes it's called anima mundi, the soul of the world, the world soul. Um, and related to this image, related to the idea that I had read a little while ago, but such um, joy and freedom and some kind of sense of relief there, um, and, and a really uh, a touching sort of mystical beauty in that particular um, perception. So it almost made me laugh with, with the joy of it. Um, Again, so I'm sharing it partly for the, for the details there and the sense of, um, you know, playing with something, staying with it, uh, altering things, picking this up but not that, picking that up but not this, etc. So that's a little bit of my process just to tell you, you know, what in, in terms of the movement in relationship to doubt with respect to all this eros and the imaginal. But basically, um, as I said at the beginning, you know, of this talk, you need to know for yourself. So I've had my process with this, maybe still going on to, to, in, in other areas, but um, related to this. But but you know you need to know for yourself, and for that you need to. Uh, we all need to keep questioning, keep exploring, um, w- with respect to desire and craving and eros. It's that spirit that the Buddha Buddha was pointing to when he said the Dhamma is ahipassiko. Come and see for yourself. Come and see. Ehi, here, pas, pas, uh, pasyati is to, to see. Come and see. Um, and so that, that spirit of that, find out for yourself. You have to keep exploring. We have to keep exploring. Um, uh, keep that questioning alive. It's very easy to think we're doing that and to believe we're doing it because we did it in the past and actually it's dried up a little bit. And we're just running on kind of a, a range, uh, an old range of insights, and not extending that questioning in that range. So, for example, it's very easy to um, see uh, sometimes how desire arises from some kind of sense of lack, and and then and then what happens is we make a conclusion, and it's that conclusion is reinforced. Um, when we hear teachings say that. Yeah, desire comes out of a lack. It's your existential lack, or people put it different ways, and that's what gives rise to d- desire. So it could be a Dharma teacher saying that, it could be some kinds of uh, modern psychoanalysis, etc. But the question is, is that always true? 
Is it always the case that desire always comes from a sense of lack? We may well revisit this, but uh, if we don't, I just want to say now, no, find out. Because sometimes there's joy and celebration that give rise to desire. Joy or celebration. Um, there is a sense of the, the libido overflowing. It's not lack, it's the opposite. It's a kind of superabundance. Something is overflowing. Libido, remember, um, is etymologically is related to uh, libation and has to do with the, the pouring of liquid is one of its uh, etymological connections. And the libido is overflowing. It's anything but lack. And other times it can, can have a sense of this this is already flowing. The desire is already flowing from me to you, from me to this thing. Eternally, somehow. It's already, it's not a lack. I'm trying to fill something. There is a desire, there's an erotic connection and it's already happening. It's not lack-driven. It's flowing from me to you, pouring from me to you, rather than me grasping at something out of lack. But investigation, knowing for yourself, keeping the questioning alive, uh, and not resting um, on, you know, uh, just a, a limited range, and and the assumptions that get entrenched out of that. And investigate any investigation exploration needs sensitivity, um, and this investigation in particular into eros and into the imaginal into soul making um, needs a, a, you know that kind of exploration needs a lot of sensitivity. I've talked about this on the last retreat, the uh, poetry of perception um, needs sensitivity and, and subtlety. Uh, we really need to you know develop the subtlety of our attention, the subtlety of our discernment. So when we talk about um, uh, imaginal practice and mindfulness of images and that bringing mindfulness to bear on, on the whole realm of the imaginal eras, we're not just talking about um, including, we definitely mean, but we're not just talking about including the energy body, the emotional awareness, the sensitivity to that, the sensitivity to the, the whole soul making and all that. But also there's another thing that needs uh, we need to make clear that um, we're also uh, involved uh, or, or should be aware of, make, make ourselves um, subtly attentive to the subtleties of relating. So the erotic imaginal implies a relationship, erotic connection, and, and all the subtleties of that relating, of the kinds of eros or the kinds of love with respect to each imaginal figure. Uh, they, the, you know, again, back to particularities and uniqueness. So each imaginal figure is 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 unique. Um, actually, I would say it, uh, with respect to each imaginal erotic interaction, what's the kind of eros here? What's the kind? What are the subtleties of the relating? What are the kinds of love in this interaction? Maybe with an image, an imaginal figure that I've. Um, had a long-standing relationship, worked with in meditation, in practice, uh, many times. But right now, in this interaction, what what are the what is what are the subtleties of of the relating involved, or uh, that seem to be asked for of the kind of eros, the kind of love here now? So we're talking with um, the erotic imagine. We're talking about 
living relationships, uh, responsive, sensitive, relating. It's so easy um, for things to kind of degenerate a little bit into just a set of techniques. So we need to be a little bit vigilant about that. Keep the sensitivity, keep the subtlety of discernment and attention uh, alive. So it doesn't become just a formula. Here's my image, and then I do this, and then I... whatever. Yeah, living, alive. Uh, Like any practice, any practice whatsoever, um, but maybe, one could say, maybe even more so in the realm of the imaginal. So, um, an imaginal figure, an imaginal relationship, it it, it hopefully doesn't ever get kind of uh, consciously or or unconsciously dumped in a category uh, that we say, tick, known, I know that one, completely known. Um, what if we did that, if we approached human others that way? Human relationships, oh yeah, I know all about you. Uh, I know who this person is. I know, I, you know, with a sense that we completely know them. Sure, we, we know, of course, some things and we rely on some things and there's that what we recognize. But what if we had that attitude in our human relationships with human others? Uh, in in our caring relationships, or um, with 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 the way we are with our eros, with human others, or sexually with others, we just have this. Oh, I know that. I know that. I, I have it. The whole thing packaged. Or with um, perceptions and I- ideas, conceptions of nature. And how easy is? Oh, yeah, I, I know. I know what that is. Oh, of course, maybe some scientific stuff I don't understand about how trees do this or how animals do this or how that evolved or whatever, this or that. But there's something, it's just kind of in my perception or in my conception of nature and all the diversity in nature, or nature as a whole, or whatever, there's just like, oh yeah, I kind of know what that is. What happens then to the relationship? So again here, um, we're not just talking about, um, uh, when, we, when we use the word image or imaginal figure, etc., not just meaning intrapsychic, so-called intrapsychic, um, but also our, our perceptions in the world, which are imbued with uh, the imaginal, imaginal perceptions of, of self, other, world. Yeah, It's all referring to all of this. So, you know, um, it's important to recognize and uh, differentiate uh, or realize what differentiates, um, let's say, meditating on an image of uh, an explicitly sexual interaction. What differentiates that, um, that kind of meditation on an image with an imaginal figure from uh, mere indulgence of what we might call more, I don't know, typical, is that right word, Uh, sexual fantasy? And fantasy in the small sense. What dif- what's the differentiation there? Or what, what differentiates the two? Well, uh, hopefully this should be clear by now, I'll say it anyway. Um, everything, to answer that, everything that differentiates imaginal practice from daydreaming and, and uh, craving. For example, the mindfulness of the en- energy body, the sensitivity to the energy body, the subtlety of attention to emotions and soul-making resonances in the body, in the whole psyche, um, the, the non-identification, 
That's quite a big deal, isn't it? Um, the the sense of the, both the other and the self as almost as being theatrical. This is theatre. There's something um, not real here. The self that's engaging this, uh, or, or the self that's involved in this, put it that way, is not real, but is also real. There's some kind of middle way, that's sort of parallel to the middle way of emptiness between existing and non-existing. There's a middle way of the imaginal between real and not real. There's a sense of the theatre of it. It's different than a lot of other um, uh, psychotherapeutic work or, or some spiritual work when the self might use the imagination, but the self involved, there's a sense of it's real. Um, here, what characterizes this is more this sense of theater and yet potent theater as theater can be, or as, as all art can be. And there's something not palpably not real in the way that we usually think of that word, but also real and and uh, and powerful there. In other words, we're seeing image as image, to use that phrase that we've used before. But it's also differentiated, you know, that kind of um, erotic imaginal practice differentiated from, uh, you know, I don't know what to call it, humdrum sexual fantasy, typical fa- sexual fantasy, um, by the conceptual framework that's operating. So there's a whole, as we said, there's a whole logos here. And that logos structures things and navigates and gives a direction and a purpose and wrapped up with the Logos, or emerging out of the Logos, is a whole intentionality, because the Logos, the conceptual framework, also um, uh, constellates an intentionality with respect to the image and the Eros. Yeah? So I'm not just, uh, you know, chasing pleasant sensations or whatever it is, or just distracting myself because I'm procrastinating on some project I have to do, or whatever it is. <clears throat> the intentionality um, is wrapped up in or emergent from, given uh, by, uh, determined by the conceptual framework in part. And that intentionality, as well as the conceptual framework, um, that makes a big difference. And the sense of dimensionality in in the image that we're relating to. That's a key piece that's characteristic of the imaginal and the erotic imaginal and the eternality of of the image. And these are things, as I've said before, that you may not notice at first if you're new to this, but then you begin to see, oh yeah, that's there. The dimensionality, the eternality. And that differentiates imaginal from imaginary or just imagination. <clears throat> and of course, you know, um, uh, eros is distinguished from craving, and imaginal practice is distinguished from daydream by by differentiated by what they lead to in the moment, in the energy body, in the soul making, and um, uh, in and long term as well, in terms of as we said engagement and and longer term soul making, uh, the opening of beauty both in the moment but also longer term meaningfulness again both in the moment but also long term in the life. And the soul making as the the stimulation and the opening of eros So also the mind is involved here. The mind is stretched. The conceptions, the visions, the perception, all of that is stretched in the world into um, uh, what was previously unfamiliar territory. This is the soul making expansion. So what's the difference? Well, one leads to all that. 
and the other doesn't. The other doesn't. And again, as someone asked me just this morning, you know, just remind me why we need why we need all this. What's the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of delineating something called eros? Uh, again, could, talked about it before in this retreat, but just say one thing right now is that yeah, we can have a um, a spiritual practice uh, or a path where, for instance, there's um, a moving towards the insight and the perception of oneness you know, universal oneness, and uh, actually many kinds of oneness, a few, you know, universal love, universal awareness, universal um, being, or the unfabricated, you know, there's, there's different kinds. But actually, there's, there's a limited amount of kinds. There's, uh, I'm never actually bothered to count, but, and then there's kind of micro variations of each, but, um, but then, you know, once one has kind of, um, seen or had those experiences enough times that it's really oh yeah that's you know gone in there as a viable perception and as a changed my sense of what existence is and what the self is opening to all these kinds of oneness um, then you're sort of done and then you either declare yourself liberated or whatever it is and uh, you do what you do um, uh, based on that declaration um, but there's a kind of, um, it's just done, it's finite, and uh, there's a little bit, almost like formulaic, you can map this stuff out. So in terms of that movement towards one, it's like you can pretty much map it out, what the perceptions are, the various ways they might happen, there's always the possibility it just goes by itself. But generally speaking, if you do this and that, it will tend to open this way and that way. And you can you can map it out as a kind of predictability or formulaic nature to that kind of opening. Important as it is, I'm, not, I'm really not knocking it. It's really crucial. Um, so that's one thing about that kind of path of oneness. Second thing about it is that the particulars and the uniqueness um, of things or beings or aspects is not actually that important. So there's a kind of equivalence or replaceability because everything is one, it doesn't really matter what, what, what there is. Because whatever else there is in this thing's place, it will also be one. It's, also all, it's all the same. So, if this forest gets cut down and made into a car park or um, whatever it is, or even if, you know, species go extinct or whatever, it's all one. It's all one. It's whatever I say, it's all love or it's all awareness or it's just the play of awareness or something. So, you know, there's a validity and a value to these perceptions, absolutely. And there's also, a, again, there's a danger, there's a risk. Um, in this case, non-engagement and certain direction and certain doors won't open that way. Because with the, in contrast with the expression of the erotic imaginal, um, I would say um, it is it's infinitely creative. There is infinite possibilities for creation and discovery of um, beauty, meaningfulness, dimensionality, um, dimensions, a uh, sense of sacredness and divinity. Um, the opening of eros, psyche, logos, meaning ideation and image, is actually 
infinite in its possibilities. Not it's not just a a sort of uh, you know set and kind of fairly predictable range of experience. Um, so, oh yeah, that's that one and that one, like we said before. And and uh, with the erotic imaginal, the the sacredness and the divinity um, is in and through the particulars, as well as in and through the universal oneness. In and through the particulars, so somehow rescues the um, particulars, and and actually gives them more dimensionality, more kinds of sacredness, more kinds of senses of divinity. How many? I think infinite, potentially infinite. This is infinite um, possibilities for creation and discovery. The the path of soul-making is endless, open-ended, infinite, potentially.